Hello, and welcome to SaaS Marketing Insights, the show where we ask SaaS founders, CEOs, marketers, and investors about the lessons they've learned in their quest to grow their companies. My name is Paul Stevenson, and I'm founder and CEO of SaaS marketing agency, 47 Insights. On today's show, I have an interview with Ben Jessen, founder and CEO of Conversion Rate Experts. Hope you enjoy it. Ben Jessen, founder and CEO of Conversion Rate uh, Experts. Welcome to SaaS Marketing Insights. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, um, so uh, having a sneaky peek at your um, LinkedIn profile, and you went to a university not far from where I went. You went to Wolverhampton, and I went to Coventry. Okay. Um, you, you just went a decade later than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was a weird time when I went. It was just before the dot com bust. So it was really interesting that we went for, kind of through university, um, really excited about all these new technology and all these new types of business. And it, it seemed like not a week went by without some kind of tech company coming in and presenting to us all saying, wow, look at these salaries, look at these working conditions. And then I graduated in 2001, just before the, uh, oh. just before the <laughs> So yeah. Yeah. So I, I do remember that time. And uh, I, I think pretty much, like me, you know, I started out as a graphic designer, uh, you know, a decade or so before you. And you know, computers were coming in, and uh, you know, it was this great, uh, amazing opportunity. And everybody thought that what was desktop publishing then was going to take over everybody's jobs. And then the internet came along, um, uh, you know, mid '90s, and changed everything. And then I guess five or six years later, you know, you did that course, uh, and you know, you were the new kids on the block and you already stood, understood, I guess, uh, the internet and websites, well, a lot more than, say, my generation did. Uh, and so you went on to a course that that actually had uh, screen design as, as part of it, um, yeah. whereas that was, you know, not around in my era. So, um, so how did, from those early beginnings, what's the story then from you going through and uh, and forming um, conversion rate uh, experts with uh, your co-founder Carl Blanks. Yeah, so yeah, two thousand one, I graduated. Um, it was the dot com bust, so all those exciting opportunities seemed to almost kind of vanish vanish overnight, and things got real. Um, so I looked for um, in-house roles. As a graphic designer back then, um, web designer, and uh, I found a job with a telecoms company that was based in the UK, but all of their customers were based in the US and Japan. And their business was, uh, the service that it provided was to provide overseas cell phones to travelers. Because back then there was, you know, there wasn't VoIP. Um, there was huge incompatibilities between the different phone networks in different countries, uh, sometimes within the same country. And so we, uh, we, we were working in a market where if anyone from the US or Japan wanted to travel to Europe, or anywhere on a GSM network, then their phones weren't compatible. So the company that I joined um, helped to solve that problem. Um, I just so happened to join in the same month that my co-founder for this business, Carl, he joined that company too. That's where we met, working in-house. And um, and then I guess we went straight from the kind of dot-com bust to um, a bit of a recession in travel, because obviously 9-11 occurred the month after we joined the company. 
and people just stopped traveling. <laughs> so, um, so it was kind of from, yeah, one recession to another, really. And, uh, and the business at the time was very much based on partnerships. It was B2B. It was kind of corporate. Um, we did very little direct-to-consumer marketing at all. And the CEO had just spent what he thought was an upsetting amount of money on a website that wasn't selling any phones. So uh, he came to me as the new in-house graphic designer and he said, um, you do websites, don't you, Ben? I said, yeah, I do. How can I help? He said, um, I've just spent a fortune on our website and it's not bringing in any sales. It's not bringing in any leads. Then will you take over it for me? And I said, of course. Yeah, I'd love to. So what's what's the remit? What, what, what are you looking for? And he said, I don't really care. I just want it to sell. Um, which is great because lots of people have a different approach. <laughs> they care about lots of stuff. Yeah. Um, but all he wanted was for it to sell. And back then, I kind of, I thought SEOs the the opportunity here. Um, and in and in you know early two thousands, not many people were doing SEO. I mean, back then we were still optimizing for sites like Alta Vista and Dogpile and that's Jeeves. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it seems a million miles away now, but uh, yeah, that's kind of how we started. And even even um, Google AdWords was not was not really around at the time, so it was SEO. Um, within about twelve months, we'd become a web business, and we were selling direct to consumer. Um, the company was bringing in about 90% of its sales from the web, predominantly SEO, scarily SEO, and um, became very reliant on that channel. And then um, something kind of interesting slash upsetting happened in that as the internet was taking off year by year and the search volumes were increasing year on year, the incompatibility issues that meant that our service was needed um, were being resolved year on year. Right. So even though things were taken off with the internet and us having a web business, the actual need for the product was shrinking, I think, 15% year on year. So we were actually in a declining market for the product, even though we we're in a accelerated market with the online marketing. Um, Carl at the time was working overseas in the US and Japan, running those businesses. And um, and then in around 2004, we were, we were thinking how we'd take the business forward. And uh, the opportunity was obviously doing stuff on the web. But as I say, the market was declining 15% year on year. So um, we, we booked to go to a web conference. It was Las Vegas PubCon um, from the old Webmaster World Forums. And uh, we went with the goal of how can we get more traffic to this website? And I remember it, it was in about 2005, this was. We, we, we walked up and down the expo halls in Las Vegas, every booth. We knew all the SEO guys that were there saying, can you help us get more traffic? And they would say, which keywords are you looking to rank for? We'd give them a list. And they'd say, you're already number one for pretty much everything. There's not a lot we can do to help you. So we kind of went there very much with the intention of how do we just drive more traffic? How do we do more SEO? How are we more dominant in the rankings, in the search engines? And we kind of realized that we kind of hit this plateau, um, especially with the search volume decreasing as well, that more traffic wasn't the biggest opportunity for us. So we, um, well, certainly not more traffic from search engines. Um, it just so happened that at that event, Google Analytics had a launch party. They'd just acquired, I think it was Urchin, who then became yeah. Google Analytics. And, um, and there was a, a kind of penny drop, really. And, and me and Carl thought, yeah, the big opportunity here isn't for the visitors that we are not yet bringing into the site. It's doing more with the visitors that we have. Um, that's kind of where Carl's background in science kind of lent itself to, to our opportunity in that all of a sudden we were spotting things like multivariate testing. 
which um, which was very new back then. This was about 2005-ish. Um, hardly anyone was doing multivariate testing or A-B testing, but Carl used to do these things as his former life as an engineer and a scientist. So straight away, he recognised that content could be engineered to be optimal in the same way that he used to engineer materials to be optimal back in back in the day. So um, we went demoing lots of testing software to try and understand how we can better optimise the on-page experience. And um, to cut a long story short, we tripled the sales in that year that we discovered um, split testing. And we learned that the big opportunity wasn't really in the technology, which at the time everyone was getting all excited about, but the big opportunity was in understanding what to test and to design content that was more persuasive, more believable, more user-friendly, and just did a better job of turning your visitors into customers. Um, we didn't kind of realize it at the time, but that was the, the seeds of conversion optimization. And, um, and then 2006 came around and Google launched a product called Google Website Optimizer, which we were so excited about. It was free and we thought this is going to go crazy. It's going to go mainstream. Google's launched this free product. Um, but again, everyone's talking about the technology. Everyone's talking about the math, the statistics, important stuff, but not the most important stuff. So we wrote an article called 101 Easy Ways to Use Google Website Optimizer which talked about how to design tests that worked. And it was based on our experience of tripling and, and then doubling a year later, actually, the sales of this telecom company during what, what in that industry was a recession. Mm. So um, we launched that article. It was on a website called conversionerexperts.com. Um, we didn't have a business at the time. Conversioner Experts was nothing more than this one article. And the article went viral. We were on the first page of Gig and Delicious and Alexa's Moves and Shakers, all the big, I guess, social networks back then. Yeah. And um, we got an email from Google, the product manager of Google Website Optimizer, inviting us to partner with Google to help advertisers to improve their conversion rates. <laughs> that's, the, that's the origin of the business, really. We went from kind of working in-house, having a lot of success, growing an online business, writing an article that coincided with the launch of Google Website Optimizer, and then Google inviting us to partner with them, even though we didn't have a business. <laughs> so so we, that, that, that's kind of what prompted us to... Uh, to transition from being client side to starting our um, conversion rate experts, and um, and yeah, I mean that was two thousand and six. Uh, that email from Google. So since then, we've helped to grow some of the web's most sophisticated companies. We work with Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, and Dropbox, and hundreds of smaller marketing leading companies who are who are growing really fast in over eighty different verticals. Yeah, we've worked in thirty seven um, countries in eleven languages. And uh, yeah, we've, we've refined what back then we called CRO. That was the name of our methodology. The kind of industry adopted the term a bit like with SEO. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's kind of how that transition went. So you are the guys that invented conversion rate optimization as a, both as a technique and uh, you've created a whole industry effectively. Yeah, we used to turn up at conferences when we started the company. And our first slide was, what is your conversion rate and why is it important? And people found that, you know, at, at the conferences where everyone was talking about AdWords and SEO and link building and, I mean, blogging was kind of very much in its infancy back then. Um, talking about conversion rate just wasn't done. We, we were often the only presenters who were even talking about this subject. And we got a lot of attention as a result. And we kind of didn't tread on anyone's toes because we weren't generating traffic. So, uh, yeah, our methodology was called the CRO methodology. We trademarked it in the US. Um, we didn't defend it when, when it went mainstream because we thought, um, we didn't want to kind of piss off everyone in the industry by kind of taking ownership of what had become 
um, a generic term, but also we thought that there was a obviously an advantage to us and everyone else in this market that this was going to go mainstream. It didn't have a name, and it was something that people were going to de dedicate their time and their careers to. So um, we're pleased that we made that decision not to kind of, yeah, not to defend that trademark because I think it benefited everyone in the industry as well as, well as us personally. So. Uh, as the name of the show implies, uh, SaaS Marketing Insights. Um, so when did you guys first come across and work with a, you know, a, a SaaS uh, client? And, um, you know, what was that like in, in the early days? Because, again, you know, SaaS was fairly new uh, mm -hmm. in 2005, 2006, 2007. Uh, yeah. I think people are still calling it ASP. Um, can you remember of any of those early clients and the, the results you got for them? I can, yeah. And it, and it was interesting because it wasn't, as you say, it wasn't an, a known term. And at the time, if, if we didn't really think of them as like a separate type of business. We just thought of them as like a technology or a software company. Mm. But um, I guess, first of all, we were users of lots of SaaS software because we're a remote first business. Um, and because we were, we were doing online marketing, we were very... Um, well-versed with the marketplace for SaaS companies. And we were customers of many different SaaS tools before we became, I guess, service providers, helping them to grow. Um, I think when we kind of spotted the shift, it was when we were working with um, Moz, who, who back then were called SEO Moz. They're, they're, yeah. a, they're now a SaaS, a SaaS software company for um, search engine marketing, search engine optimization. And um, when we hired Moz, they were making the transition from a consulting business to a, an information subscription business. So we helped them with that transition. And then once they kind of redefined themselves as a subscription business, um, they made the transition to a software company and we worked with them through that transition too. And that was, it was fascinating to see at the time, there were lots of real smart service businesses or subscription businesses that kind of productized their intellectual property and, and turned it into a SaaS software. And, um, and the great thing about working with Mars is uh, obviously one of their values is transparency. So when we asked Mars if we could publish a case study about the work that we'd done with them, Rand and the team were, were only too happy to give us approval for that. And, and again, a bit like the, the 101 Google Website Optimizer tips, the Mars case study went viral and we received lots of attention from other businesses who were, I guess, in the early days of SaaS and hadn't quite figured out what the, what the funnel should look like, what the goal should be how to measure success and how, how to market SaaS um, because it, it kind of traditional software was quite enterprisey um, and all the all of the I guess the old old software for want of a better word was kind of just downloads so you'd be tracking downloads whereas with SaaS it, it had a more determined funnel there were clearer steps between you know a first-time demo a first-time registration a free trial a paid upgrade a paid customer and then the ongoing monthly payments um, so there was more of a defined funnel and there were more things that you could optimize. So off the back of our Moz case study, we, um, we were contacted by lots of other SaaS businesses in, in lots of other um, verticals. And, um, and it's been fascinating for us because we've, we've kind of seen companies not just make that transition from not a SaaS business to a SaaS business, but we've also over the last over 10 years now, watched the transition of the SaaS businesses who have they've raised money, they've won awards for fast growth, they've gone public, they've been acquired, and we've kind of seen the market mature. And um, we've had a good insight into, I guess, what, what the winning businesses have done differently over the years. 
and um, yeah, it's been a real privilege really to kind of see that market mature. And, and it's still at the beginning. I mean, mature is probably too strong a word, but there's a hell of a lot of stuff that hasn't been sassed yet. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> we're still halfway uh, through sassifying things. There's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so yeah, it's been interesting that that kind of seeing the market develop and, and seeing where it is now it's it's really exciting to see kind of you know we work with with dropbox in the run-up to their ipo we work with a company called t-sheets in the run-up to their acquisition by intuit and we've worked with citrix um a whole host of companies in, in very different markets but with with the same kind of fundamental business model so mm. uh, yeah it's been it's been exciting it's been fun so how do you um I'm just curious because obviously as a as a business and a team, you've sort of grown. Uh, I think you just mentioned that you're remote first. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've got people all over the place. Um, but how do you cope with dealing with not only like the range of business models, but also um, the, the size of businesses? Because mm. um, I guess the temptation might be uh, with a consultancy such as yours to say, well, actually, you know, we're the cream of the crop now. And, you know, uh, if you want to start working with us, the, the minimum fee is, you know, $250,000 and, you know, uh, and so, such. but, you know, is, is that something that you do or are you still working with, um, say, smaller, you know, I'm just thinking from a perspective of a, a listener, say, who's a bootstrap SaaS business and they think, yeah, we could really do with some help here. Where yeah. would those guys go for help? You know, is that something that that you can help them with, or would you point them in the, the direction yeah. of the educational stuff that you've done? Um, I mean, we do work we do work with um, startups, so it's not like we're exclusively for the kind of the big boys of the web. Um, we work with with a range of companies, and and we've also helped um, we help companies at different stages in their. I guess, in their life cycle. So um, we don't tend to work with companies that haven't got any money yet um, or aren't <laughs> making any money yet. But the minute that they got product market fit and the minute they've got a few channels where they put a dollar in, they got a couple of dollars out, um, if they're investing in marketing, which they do to reach the economies of scale they need to, then, um, yeah, we, we, we do work with earlier stage, but not, I, I guess, nothing kind of angel level or, you know, series A. Um so as far as what, how we can help those businesses, we, we've, we've published, uh, a bit, bit, bit soon for a shameless plug, but I'm going to, as you asked, we've published uh, Making Websites Win, which, is, um, which has got tons of advice for, for all businesses, not just SaaS, but that's got our methodology of how we grow web businesses in it. Um, I mean, I'll, I can talk more or you can put it in the show notes where to get that from. But um, there's lots of advice there. It comes down to a couple of things, really. It comes down to understanding the visitors that do convert and become customers and really understanding what it is that makes them customers and making sure that the things that persuaded those prospects to become customers are very prominent throughout your entire marketing funnel. That's obviously important. Equally as important is understanding your non-converting visitors. So those are the prospects that come to the website through a qualified lead that their services, the service is right for them, but for whatever reason they don't convert Either they're not persuaded of the benefits, they don't trust the company, they don't think it'll work, or there's some kind of user experience problem that prevents them from converting. And then it's about coming up with ideas that will kind of profoundly impact your conversion rate. So what are the big, bold changes 
that you could make to a home page, a landing page, an ad, a sign-up flow, a pricing page, an onboarding process that would persuade more people to take the action that you want them to take. So, um, so yeah, I guess the quickest way for someone that is just getting started or bootstrapping is to either, um, I mean, the book's just a couple of dollars for the ebook, or our methodology is actually published on our website as well. So people are very welcome to kind of check it out and to apply it themselves. Fantastic. Thanks for that. And I think uh, with the book that you don't make any profit from that, doesn't it go to a charity or something? It does indeed. Yeah, we support, we support a charity called Mary's Meals who, um, who are doing fantastic work. And they, um, yeah, they set up school feeding programs in some of the world's poorest communities where hunger and poverty prevents kids from getting an education. So, um, so by buying the book, you're helping to, uh, to feed the kids that Mary's Meals supports. And so far, we've, we've paid for the ongoing feeding of over two and a half thousand kids. So um, wow. a big thanks to everyone that's helped us uh, support Mary's Meals. Yeah, I've got the book and I've, I've read it a couple of times, actually, uh, <laughs> every now and then for inspiration. Um, yeah. So in the last sort of 10 or 12 years or whatever it's been since you guys have been going, has much changed in terms of your methodology? I mean, obviously, it's developed. And, you know, where do you see this uh, this new industry of CRO that you guys invented going? Yeah, um, I think in terms of, I guess if I could break that down in terms of where we see, I guess, SaaS going and how CRO fits into the development of SaaS, but also in terms of um, the things that, that the common opportunities that we see with SaaS businesses and, and, the, and things that are common to preventing um, the growth of SaaS businesses. So is it OK if I kind of cover that in two steps? Because it's Yeah, I'd love it. Sounds great. But, um, <laughs> As far, as far as what we're seeing in SaaS, there's, there's a lot of M&A activity at the moment. We're seeing a lot of companies that are being acquired by larger organizations who, need, who know they need to get into SaaS or, or know that they need to provide those kinds of services to their clients. And so we've been hired by companies like Verizon and Dell to help them integrate and grow their newly acquired SaaS businesses. That's interesting. Um, we've worked alongside, as I mentioned, T-Sheets in the run-up to their acquisition by Intuit. Um, so companies that are very much kind of on that growth trajectory, they've already got product market fit and they're, they're just doing incredible numbers. Um, and, and we've got interviews with these companies on our website. If anyone's interested in kind of hearing from the clients a little bit more about how this works. Um, but one interesting thing we've seen probably over the last, I don't know, 18 months is um, more founders are seeking alternatives to the kind of typical Silicon Valley unicorn model of mm. going out and raising a load of VC money and then going down the IP or die. <laughs> and, uh, and that's been interesting for us to see because uh, kind of historically a lot of SaaS founders have just thought that the kind of the VC model the IPO route is, is the only way but we've seen lots of founders now who are building these kind of exciting but sustainable and highly profitable companies um, and they're either bootstrapping them or they're taking alternatives approaches to funding like um, bigger angel rounds or partnerships or crowdfunding and, um, and we think that that's an interesting trend. And I, I guess companies like Basecamp have been banging on about this for years. Yeah, they have. David have written a lot of like real smart stuff about why they don't kind of play that VC game. Um, but more recently, there are things like the Zebra Manifesto at zebrasunite.com, talking about the difference between like a, a Zebra company and a VC-backed unicorn. 
And founders, there, there are, I think there have been a few prominent founders who are kind of role models for a different approach. People like Rand Fishkin with Spock Toro, which, which we invested in, which was a very different model. Um, Joel Gascoigne from Buffer, who's always been very transparent, talking about the different approaches that he takes growing his business. Chris Savage from Wistia recently kind of took a step back from that VC mm. kind of funded model and, and took control back of the company. People like David Darmanin from Hotjar, who are all talking about these kind of alternative approaches to the tech unicorn model. And, um, and I think the interesting thing from our point of view is with, with CRO, it's kind of applicable to both models. If, if you want to go down the VC route of just raising loads of money, throwing it at marketing and, and getting that quick market share, then you're not going to be able to afford all those different marketing channels or they're not going to be sustainable unless you're converting those visitors into customers. But likewise, if you're going to bootstrap or take a small angel round or, 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 or do a crowdfunding round, then you need to be a hell of a lot smarter with your marketing dollars, in, in which case CRO is even more valuable because you're extracting more profit from the visitors that you're already getting for. So you're either getting more customers for free from your existing traffic, or you're unlocking new channels that previously may have been too expensive because you're doing a more effective job of converting those visitors into customers. So, um, so yeah, I think any SaaS business, whether they're, they're going down the kind of fast growth VC unicorn direction or the bootstrapped model, um, it's obviously prudent to get more from your existing traffic before you reinvest in other channels. So, yeah. Uh, so definitely CRO is the way to go, whichever your funding model. <laughs> it is, it is. Because, yeah, I mean, and also if you don't, you're going to lose to someone that does. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Ultimately, it's kind of online marketing is an auction and it's an auction for attention. It's an auction for clicks. And the people that can afford to bid the most are those that are extracting the most from those channels. So, um, so, so yeah, it's, it's interesting in that respect as well. It's kind of a prerequisite for success, regardless of your kind of approach when it comes to backing the company. Um, so, yeah. starting off with um, with you, with you as a graphic designer and Carl as a scientist, and you create this company, and uh, you know this thing goes viral, uh, and your insights fuel and create a whole industry uh, and more and more people want to use you then suddenly you've got to grow this business to deliver mm -hmm. consulting services to uh, everyone that wants them yeah. uh, how have you guys managed to to cope with that just starting off from with the two of you and then over the last 10 years you know growing the business and, and actually servicing you know all, all the clients and some pretty big blue chip names there uh, mm -hmm. yeah how have you coped with that? And how do you guys sort of split? Is it that Carl's operational and you're, I, I don't know. I mean, how does it work? Um, I'd say when you go back to, I guess, when we created the company, um, we were very influenced by a book called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Oh, I love that book. How, yeah, it's, it's a great <laughs> book. And it's all about how the, the myth of the entrepreneur is that you're going to create a business, but most people just create um, jobs for themselves. A job and, with overheads, I think the line is. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we um, there, there was a kind of there's a part of the e myth where it talks about you should always approach your business as if it's a pre-franchise prototype, yeah. and create systems and create workflows and and document things so that other people can do the tasks that you do. Because ultimately, you're not going to grow the business if you're the one always doing the work. 
And that was what led us to document and name our methodology. So we knew all this stuff that we'd done in-house previously that worked well. We knew what was working well with our first handful of clients and we knew what was, um, yeah, we, we kind of had a routine and a way of doing things and a sequence. So we took a really painful year where we, um, I think we kind of almost put an out of office on our emails for three days a week where we documented everything that we did. And um, we documented everything we did operationally. So in terms of how to work remotely with clients, how to, you know, which software to use, how to manage calls, how to manage tasks, how to manage the workflows of the work itself. So we, we created a manual around the client work. We obviously created um, that we documented the methodology of all the different steps to grow a web business and what you have to do at every stage. And um, we, we're constantly refining that. It wasn't something that we documented back then and it's, it's still the same now. Um, we obviously refine it. We're always trying to apply the 80-20 principle to everything we do. Um, and we made the decision to just, um, I say we made the decision. It was, it's a decision that's forced upon us by our business model, really. So our clients split test everything we create, which means they measure whether it works or not. There's no hiding place in our business. <laughs> a page either wins, it loses, or it's inconclusive. And if it doesn't win, then, um, yeah, then our clients aren't, aren't you know, they get that not every page is going to win, but um, you have to get wins. <laughs> so one thing that's kind of happened is in us running A-B split tests, we have to be extremely accountable. And at the same time, the fact that we run A-B split tests and we're accountable means we get good results, which also attracts smart, sophisticated clients. So we've got ourselves in this position, which, um, which is a, a kind of, We've made a rod for our own back whereby we attract sophisticated clients that are already running A-B split tests and have optimized pages and they were hiring us to beat them. So you can only do that with good processes and smart people. So, uh, so we, we hire people that are already good at this stuff and already doing it and have come from normally a client side background of having evidence that they can grow web businesses. And then, um, we, we kind of got this kind of internal mantra that if we've got the best people and the best process, we'll attract the best clients. And if we have the best clients, that means we'll need the best people and we'll attract more of the best people. And that will, having the best people creates a better process. So all of the processes in our organization are editable by anyone in the company. So if, everyone, if, if anyone in the company figures out a better way of doing something, then they can edit the process within the company. The, the company's like a wiki reader, really, yeah. with lots of smart editors that are accountable for the for the, um, the results that their work generates. Um, and it's tough. It's not, it's not an easy to scale business. I mean, consultancies and agencies typically aren't. But, um, but yeah, we've managed to kind of keep our reputation for doing good work. And a lot of the, a lot of the marketing that we do to grow the business and to attract team members or to attract clients, they're, they're a byproduct of what we do operationally as well. So um, if we, you know, if we figure out a really smart way of doing some kind of research and then we update our methodology and we publish a case study about it, that kind of attracts sophisticated clients and sophisticated marketers that might want to join us or hire us. Um, so lots of what we do is a byproduct of what we do operationally. And we just publish that information, which, uh, which sometimes feels a bit scary when we're putting it out there. Um, but, but we've learned that when we've got that feeling in our gut, thinking, oh, should we really be publishing this? It's crazily valuable and it's, it's our IP. 
that's normally the time when we hit publish and something works quite well. <laughs> so, yeah, we've kind of grown yeah. used to the motion. Mm. There's quite um, parallel there with uh, going back to Rand Fishkin and what he did with SEO Mars, wasn't it? You know, he yeah. put it out there and, and everybody shared what, what they learned. And, and then, you know, obviously he went down the, uh, the, the, the SaaS route. Have you not been tempted to uh, create a SaaS product of your own? We have. Um, and I, I, I'd say we've probably almost got them, but they're not public products. So internally, we, um, we try and productize as much as we can. And we try and systematize and standardize as much as we can. I mean, obviously, no two clients are the same. But over the years, we have learned that there are certainly approaches that are consistently fruitful amongst different clients. And, um, and what we do... I guess we've got two things that are valuable to us as a company. The first thing we have is we've got years worth of research of why visitors do and don't convert. And we've created lots of, um, I guess, internal IP around what those things are. And again, we share a ton of it in the book, <laughs> but, um, but we're constantly creating that, that knowledge. Um, and the other thing we do is we, um, we document all of the experiments that, that win. So over the years, we've actually built up quite a library. We call it the WINS database internally, a library of what works in a given situation. Um, so we document the objections that the visitors have to the website, what kind of website it is, what country it's in, what industry it's in, and what the goal of the website is. So whenever we start with a new client project, we can reference our WINS database to look for commonalities in that funnel with previous projects that we've worked on and look at what's worked in the past. And, um, and in preparation for this call, I actually put together a few things for SaaS businesses <laughs> of, um, of kind of things that tend to tend to prevent oh. conversion and things that tend to work. Please share. We'd love to hear yeah. those. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we typically when we're hired by a SaaS business, our job is to increase sign-ups, sales leads, demos, downloads, paying customers, upgrades to annual plans, um, customer engagement and retention. So those are the kind of goals that we are accountable to when we hired by a SaaS company. And we've been fortunate we've worked in some quite diverse markets in SaaS as well. Dropbox is obviously file sharing and management. Mars is marketing. Zero Finance, Vimeo Media, Citrix, Collaboration. We with Tiny Pulse, a HR platform. T-Sheets, Time Tracking, and Jam, Fudu Device Management. And, um, and though all of those projects, if you were to look at the before and after pages, they'd all be very different. Um, in our experience, the things that tend to prevent SaaS conversions are going straight into a trial before selling the software. So a very common convention in SaaS is just, let's just lower the barrier to entry to try the product, so much so that the first step is almost just dive into the product. Mm. And, um, and that works in many situations, and it, it worked great for Dropbox, obviously, because the product kind of, it's self-explanatory, and it's obvious what it does, and it just works. But for a lot of SaaS software, um, especially in, in B2B, there's almost no salesmanship if you use that conversion funnel and it puts all the burden on the software itself to do the selling. And unless the software is as simple as something like Dropbox, the, the user may never see the sales message. They may never hear it. So one thing we often look at with SaaS companies is, yeah, it's great to have a free trial or a limited trial or even a kind of some kind of demo but don't forget that you still need to go through the sales message as if you were selling it face-to-face -face with a prospect in order to sell someone on the value that they'll get from the product. 
before they use it because you kind of need that motivation. You know, not all SaaS software is ridiculously easy to use. Not all SaaS software is obvious what it does and how it works. So you need to motivate the prospects so that the bits of the conversion funnel that are a little bit painful for them or have a little bit of, um, I don't know, it's a little bit up in the air in terms of how this SaaS product's going to help the user. Don't forget to do the sales message at some point. And it's a really common, I won't say mistake, because it's not a mistake for all businesses, but it's common that there's just not a sales conversation before someone dives into that software for the first time. I think it's um, becoming quite trendy, you know, where for the product to actually be the marketing. You know, you go to the website and it's just, yeah, just, you know, sign up here, just go straight into it. They don't even tell you what it is or what the benefits of it is. It's just like they assume that you know. And then they magically suppose that you're going to convert or you're going to find out how the product works and, and what it does for you and what the benefits are by using it. And then you'll convert, you know, just because of that. Um, yeah. And I think that is, you know, I actually see that um, in both product marketing conversations and marketing generally, SaaS marketing generally. That seems to be, you know, what the cool kids are doing now. And uh, I'm not convinced by it either. <laughs> It works for some products. Like yeah, say, I mean, we split test it, and and yeah, we, we often we often get yeah we, we often get wins from um from just basically telling the telling the user why they should be using this product and um, and explaining it. I, you know it doesn't have to be kind of salesy and it doesn't have to be full of hype and stuff, but just whatever you'd say if someone phoned you up and said, "Hey, I'm a good prospect for what you offer." Um, could you tell me a little bit about it? You know, even something <laughs> basic, just just modeling what would happen on the phone is, is better than just jumping straight into the software. Because if you wouldn't do that in real life, if, if someone knocked on the office door and said, hey, I'm interested in your solution, would you say, right then, give me a name, a password, I'll send you a link to register for the software, off you go. Or would you at least spend a couple of minutes introducing your company and the service and the problem you're trying to solve? To just to motivate the prospect to go through that sign-up process. So that's one. Um, and, and that kind of leads on to the next one. If the benefits aren't communicated clearly, a lot of SaaS businesses are created by technical founders um, who yeah. are also creating product, um, but they've never been in that uncomfortable situation of having to try and sell the product face-to-face -face or over the phone or at an event. And as a result, the sales copy often resembles the founder's understanding of what the product is and what the product does. And it doesn't always make the link between the prospect's needs before things dive into the features and the technical stuff. And, um, and again, often the benefits get hidden in all the noise of the technical stuff and the features, and it's just not clear. There's no obvious USP. There's no obvious use case. There's no obvious benefit. And, um, and it doesn't take much to communicate that in your ads, your landing page, your pricing page, just to kind of reassure people and to remind them why, why you're the right option for their needs. Um, another really common one is, is that prospects lack a clear understanding of how it works. Um, and we found with technology companies, the user needs a mental model of how it all fits together. How does it integrate with my existing systems? Who on my team would use this and how? What kind of data do I need to plug into it or get out of it? And how does it fit into my organization? And what actually happens on the back end? And, um, and this is something that, 
again, often you, you'll sign up to something, you'll sign up to a free trial and you'll think, well, what, what does happen next? Which I think leads you on to future pacing, which is something that some SaaS companies do brilliantly well. Some of them don't do at all. But um, yeah, what does happen next? What does the user need to do? Do they need to download anything? Do they need to browser extension? Do they need to submit more information? Do they need to invite users? How does that work? Do they need to connect to an API, attend a demo? Um, what, what actually happens next? And some kind of flow chart or some kind of description or sometimes a little video or, or just a bit of audio from a founder just talking through this is what will happen next can give that kind of reassurance that on the other side, everything's going to be okay. And it massively reduces the perceived risk. Um, I've heard that might be a like a cultural thing, really, because I think is it in Japan, they quite often have like diagrams showing you like here's yeah. what happens when you buy and it's like a, a whole process uh, and that's not something that in the west we seem to put much emphasis upon yeah and it works it works surprisingly well i mean we, we um we worked a lot in japan back in the telecoms days and um we were always split testing stuff that worked in japan in the u.s business and vice versa and we found that a good idea is a good idea regardless of the language <laughs> and um yeah, and, and I guess along a similar line, one thing that we've encountered a lot with SaaS businesses is that the visitors perceive it as being a switching decision. So if, for example, you want to trial some new email marketing software or a CRM or, or even a web analytics tool, if the visitor perceives it to be a switching decision, it's a much bigger decision. They might need to persuade their colleagues. They might have prepaid for the service. They might not be confident that when the switch happens, you'll get the right data in the right place. And quite often, visitors will perceive something to be a switching decision even though it's not you can run these two different solutions in parallel and then just see which one works best for your needs and reassuring people that there's not a switching decision that needs to happen often generates great results because it, again it just removes that kind of that level of risk and the scariness of i don't want to turn this off just in case this doesn't quite work um i suppose with corporate software sometimes as well you know the the, the buying decisions are quite complicated or can be you know particularly with enterprise software Absolutely. Uh, so you know you've got to get them to toe dip and try it uh, yeah. because that's the only way you're going to get it otherwise if you wait for some bureaucratic buying decision it could take years <laughs> it could indeed it could indeed and, and often in those situations we find that the people that trial the new software are often the kind of like the, the company mavericks for want of a better word who thought, oh, I've read about this on Hacker News or TechCrunch. I think it looks interesting. I think it looks exciting. I'm going to give it a whirl. And sometimes they'll do it with their, like, their personal email addresses and stuff and in their spare time just to get a feel for what it does. Whereas if you feel like it needs to be some kind of switching decision, it just massively uh, puts barriers in the way of who you've got to persuade, who you've got to get buying from, how you're going to procure it. So um, if there's no switching necessary, then, then make the user know that. Um, so yeah, and the onboarding is another one as well. It's um, the sales funnels tend to be like hyper optimized to generate the leads or the demos or the signups, but then the onboarding is often neglected or very hands off. Um, so so yeah, we, we we spend quite a lot of time working on the onboarding because it's great getting a lead, it's great getting a first time visitor or a registration, but if they're not going to stick around, then you, you've still got a conversion problem, albeit at, at a later stage in the funnel. Yeah, yeah, uh, that does come back to bite people in the arse. <laughs> it does indeed, it does indeed. And um, top of the funnel, and again, you get them in, you get them converted, 
and then no onboarding and they just disappear. Yeah, and, and, and that's when you often, the one thing that's interesting is in, in, the, in the funnels where you just go straight into a free trial and it's a product's job to do the marketing, one thing that people often forget is that's fine if that works, but you can still have the sales letter as part of an email sequence for the onboarding people to keep that motivation going, to build the value and to communicate why it's a good idea when they're going through that awkward phrase of, oh, do I cancel it? My expiry's coming up, do I renew it? I don't want to commit to 12 months. Can I do it monthly? And it's at that point often where if you haven't done the sales on the front end and it's not during the onboarding process, then that motivation just isn't there or it's not clearly communicated. So, um, Ben, I think you could... uh, we could sort of go on all day, or you could. Because I think <laughs> yeah. you've, got, you've got so many insights. I don't want you to give it all away because, you know, I want people to pay to use your services. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, there's a lot more. <laughs> um, yeah. This is also, so far, the longest podcast I've ever done. So congratulations. Oh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. It's been fantastic. Um, but I do want to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much for your insights and and for creating this industry that we now know as conversion rate optimization and um also for the the book making websites win uh which uh, i think is a great publication and and really i think anybody in SaaS marketing should get a copy of that if they haven't already and read that because there's so much you can learn from it um thank you so much for your time i do appreciate it Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a yeah, great to speak, and uh, yeah, I, I, ho- I hope even though it's your longest, it's uh, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ben, thank you very much. Have a, have a great uh, great rest of the day, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate the time. It was fantastic. Likewise, it's been great to speak. Thank you. Catch you later. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben. For more info on Conversion Rate Experts, please visit conversionrateexperts.com. For more info about this show and to get our links to iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher and YouTube, check out www.47insights.com. And if you have any SaaS marketing insights that you'd like to share on the show, please get in touch. Until next time.